Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So glad that you're joining us once again uh, for another week in the book of Revelation. Uh, This week, we find ourselves in chapter five. Uh, If you've not caught up with us, make sure you go back, listen to the introduction to the book itself. Make sure you listen to uh, the very uh, first chapter, as well as the second and third chapters, walking through the letters to the churches um, in Asia Minor. Then chapter four, of course, the throne room in heaven. And now John remains as he is in heaven, uh, and he sees one who is able to open the scroll. So that's what we'll be talking about today. So glad you've joined us. Uh, We're going to go ahead and read the chapter. That's chapter five. Read the whole chapter. We hope you'll follow along with us. Corey, do you want to read chapter five? You bet. I'm reading for the English Standard Version, beginning verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll on deals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Hey, as we look in this chapter, we want to point out just a few things as we begin. Uh, First, that chapter four and chapter five very much fit together. In chapter four, we see that John was transferred into heaven into the heavenly throne room where God is sitting upon his throne. And he describes the picture as um, nearly indescribable. He uses stones and colors to basically uh, get the picture of what he's seeing. He describes the throne as being surrounded um, by uh, 24 elders, uh, which we talked through uh, last week. So we hope you go listen to that. We talked about the cherubim surrounding the throne. Um, We talked about the sea of glass and this amazing heavenly scene where the holiness of God is on full display. And now what we have is that same throne room. And first, uh, the first thing that's mentioned in chapter five is that the one who is seated on the throne, namely God, the father is holding something in his hand. 
and it's a scroll. Do you want to mention anything in particular about those first few verses with God the Father on the throne holding the scroll? Well, I think um, several things are interesting. Uh, number one is that it's in his right hand. And the right hand of God is always uh, symbolic of his authority. And so here you have God holding this in his right hand, but th this, this scroll has, has writing on it on the inside and on the outside of it. And it's, it's a lot of writing and it really um, contains all of the the plans and purposes of God for judgment and redemption um, for that, that will be carried out. And so it is sealed with seven seals. And in the Roman culture, whenever, whenever somebody made a will, they, they wrote on it, they, they wrote it all out and they sealed it with seven seals. And so only upon the death of someone could that will, could those seals be broken and that will be open. And so I think it's significant that you have this, this scroll here that has those seven seals on it because there has been a death. There's been the death of the lamb of God and a resurrection. And so now we have this, this scroll here that has all of these plans and purposes of God for um, the execution of those plans to be done. You have to find one that can open this uh, upon the death of, of the one who created it. So the scroll itself is the um, the layout of what will come from the point of Christ's ascension forward, um, the redemption to come for believers, the judgment to come upon unbelievers, um, and all of that is held within the sovereign and authority authoritarian hand of the one who's on the throne, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning, you know, in the book of Daniel, you have um, prophecy that is to come and it's to be sealed. And what we're going to find that the prophecy that is written uh, uh, about in the book of Revelation that is sealed is about to be unsealed. It's about to take mm -hmm. place. Right. And of course, there's differing opinions on uh, the length of time that that takes place, when it will take place. But um, for all of us, we should see anything written in the New Testament scriptures, especially what is being opened before us as something of imminent importance. Right. Um, it's important for us today. It was important for the church back then. It's important for all believers until the, uh, the return of Christ. Um, so um, I, th I think it's also just important to note that um, the uh, the Lord himself um, spoke, uh, as the book of Hebrews tells us, and many times in, in many ways, but specifically through prophets in the Old Testament. The beginning of the book of Revelation says that this is a prophecy. And so um, uh, what we have in the book of Revelation is this prophecy mentioned that's not yet been revealed that will slowly be revealed as it's opened up. And as John describes, what will take place. Um, so I think that's really unique. Um, you know, God spoke through prophets in the Old Testament. And now he's speaking um, through his son, as Hebrews says, to John, an apostle, a foundation of the church, so that we might learn from the apostles about Jesus Christ himself and obey the prophecies that are written in Revelation. I think it's kind of unique. You know, one thing you said there, too, is that uh, in Daniel, it does say that um, that he is to take what has been given to him at one point and seal it up. Right. Daniel 12. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, it, but it says that because those things are for the latter days, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I've talked about how like the time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, those are all considered the latter days. Right. And so, so you have this opening up. And so like, we know that we're living in those latter days. Um, and we know that like, we have a, we have a privilege of, of understanding because we've been given this revelation the people in Old Testament didn't have. I mean, they they had what they needed. Uh, they had the promises of the Messiah that is to come, but like there's been a fulfillment that's happened here. And so like, yeah. just to understand that, 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 that prophecy, that scroll that was sealed up in Daniel is this scroll that's going to be opened is pretty mm. phenomenal to think about to me. That's great. Yeah. I think uh, the listeners might just, um, the discerning listeners might begin to see where we're going to stand on different issues starting in these chapters now. Right. I mean, yeah. it's very difficult to, to say um, that a position is, is uh, um, easily understood or easily taken in the letters to the churches. But once you start getting past that chapters four five, and especially starting in chapter six, you begin to see differing opinions start to come up about the book of revelation. So I think you're going to be able to, um, you know, listening closely, um, see maybe some positions that we begin to take here. Um, and that's okay. Um, we, we have good godly men and women who disagree with the positions we may take. Um, but, um, we want to, you know, treat others with charity and, um, try to bring clarity to what we think is true. Yeah. What were you going to say to that? Well, just that we're right. I mean, you know, well, the thing, the thing is, is, if you hold an opinion, there's a reason you hold it, right? You, yeah, it's right. because you think you're right, right? Yeah. So um, uh, if you're holding an opinion you don't think is right, it's not a very good idea to hold that opinion, right? So, hey, let's continue on. Is, yeah. Well, I just want to okay. say, I do think it is, I do think it's important what you said there a minute ago that, that like the people that hold the other convictions do so based upon scripture. Right. You know, like we're not saying that they're, heretical. We're not saying that they're outside the bounds of the authority of the Bible. Um, they hold those because of the, of the word of God. And so that I think is why we, we give charity to them in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause, because there's, there's viewpoints on the book of revelation that would not be held, um, uh, because of biblical reasons. Right. Um, right. but, but those would not be, um, uh, Christian churches. They would be cults. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, viewpoints like Jehovah's Witnesses that see the 144,000 as uh, the only ones who will be saved, the elect themselves. You know, that's not, that's not biblical. It's not based on anything biblical. It's based upon their own teaching. And so we would disregard that. Um, whereas the majority of biblical scholars who disagree within, you know, the bounds of what is true, um, they do so based upon different texts within the Bible. You know, they might take Ezekiel, whereas I might take, you know, um, First Corinthians about the temple. You know, so, um, yeah. And I, I think it's important, too, that probably there are, there are good godly people in both of our churches that probably wouldn't come down where we do. Sure. And so, like, absolutely, uh, we, I think it's important to know that, like, we even shepherd people who differ from us. And, you know, that's okay. We can still have unity in Christ. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, what we agree on is that there is but one way to be saved. And there's two eternal destinations for man and woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for those that have trusted Christ and in Christ alone, there is eternal bliss in the presence of God. And um, uh, for those who have rejected Christ, there is eternal punishment um, under the wrath of God. 
So, um, Hey, let's continue. Uh, do you want to just look at the next few verses and start making some comments on them? Sure. Um, you know, whenever um, we get to verse two and we, we have this um, angel proclaiming, asking the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And, and John begins to weep. You know, like some people might look at that and think, man, like what, what an overreaction that John is having uh, mm. here. Because, I mean, that's just a simple question. Who is worthy? But no one was found that was worthy to open the scroll. Not angels, not the cherubim, as crazy yeah. as they may have. Yeah. Yeah, no one. And, and thinking about like what all that meant, if no one was found worthy to open the scroll, it meant the, the plans and the purpose of God wouldn't be executed. I mean, the, which is the, terrifying just, for the church. Yeah, for sure. Horrifying. Um, especially considering everything that they're going through. I mean, again, we, we've talked several times that this was written to the churches in Asia Minor, but written to the, the global church, the, uh, the church for all time. And so considering everything that the church has gone through, through the ages to know that number one, it would mean that, that, that God's plan wouldn't be carried out. It means that Jesus uh, wouldn't be worshiped as a redeemer. It means that the, the, the martyrs wouldn't be avenged. The prayers of the saints wouldn't be answered. Um, it means that the, the kingdoms of this world will not become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Um, the plans of God are spinning outside of anyone's control. Yeah. No one, I mean, just, right. there's so many things that would be terrifying. And so John's not overreacting here. Like yeah. he is, he is deeply sorrowful and, you know, that um, the, the loudly is not just a word about volume. Uh, it, it's, it's a word about the, the amount of weeping that he did. I mean, he was wailing over this. And, and you think about the fact that Revelation is laid out for us for our hope. And in that moment, John had no hope. Like there, and, and you think about things that you've gone through in your life and I've gone through in my life and just those that are listening, just some of the difficulties. And if you are left with no hope in that moment, like all you've got is despair. And what do you do with that? You know, like you're just completely with nothing. And so I think, I think John has an appropriate reaction to when no one was found worthy to open the scroll. You know, what's so great about that is, is consider our lives. So say we were um, uh, living, created by God, uh, yet God um, chose not to send Christ and offer a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. We would be similarly, as you're mentioning, be without hope, right? Um, and, and that somewhat was true the way the Ephesians talks that we were strangers to the covenants of God, foreigners, not a part of the family of God without God. And therefore without hope in the world as Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says, um, but then Christ stepped in mm-hmm. and this is exactly what happens in this story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that, that's all of our story that we were people without hope. And then Christ steps in 
right? And so uh, I, I don't mean to get ahead of us, but as we're just moving forward for the sake of time, so no one in heaven on earth, as you mentioned, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And it's not because um, uh, of powerful reasons that Christ was able to open the scroll. I mean, Christ is powerful and sure he, I'm sure we could speculate that with his power, he could, but what, what, um, um, what qualified him to open the scroll was his worth, that he was worthy to open the scroll. Yeah. And that's what it says. Weep no more. An elder says to John, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. So of course, who we're talking about here is Jesus himself. He steps into the picture as the worthy one. He was able to open the scroll that's in the father's right hand. And it describes him in, uh, as um, the root of David and the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Do you want to make any comments about those? Well, I mean, that's just, you go back to Genesis uh, 49 there and Israel or Jacob is blessing his sons. And in the blessing, um, Judah Judah is said to be like a lion in that. And so like there, there would be this one that would come forth from Judah. And so there's a fulfillment of prophecy that, that this Messiah was going to come from the line of Judah, but also then you've got the root of David. Um, so, so you've got the tribe of Judah and now you're, you're kind of narrowing this thing down to the root of David. And I think it's, um, I think it's in Isaiah um, where Isaiah prophesies because this, you know, with, with the exile uh, into Babylon, it seems like this, uh, the nation of Israel has been cut off, but yet God has left a stump. And then Isaiah says that, that there was a shoot coming up from the root of Jesse. And so it's further clarification on who this is. And so Jesus both fulfills the prophecy about the line of the tribe of Judah and also the root of David. And in that, it says he has conquered. And so, you know, the uh, this, this line of the tribe of Judah, um, he is a conquering king. He is the Messiah. And so that's one aspect of who John sees here but just one aspect of it. So Jesus comes and he is in the picture uh, as the one and the only one who is worthy to open up the seals. So the seals have been in the right hand of the father on the throne. uh, And um, John weeps wondering who is going to be able to have the decisive authority um, uh, to open the scroll and to exercise oversight and execute the plan of God from that point until the end of all things, the consummation of God's eternal kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. So uh, without Christ stepping in the picture, you know, there is no hope. Christ steps in the picture. There's ultimate hope. Um, he will be the one uh, who exercises authority. And um, I don't mean to get too far ahead of myself, but Matthew 28 at Jesus's ascension basically says that he is given authority over heaven and earth. Right. Mm. Um, and so Jesus does in fact have that authority to um, execute the plans of God as God for all eternity at the right hand of the father where the scroll sits itself. Right. This is just a beautiful picture. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ having conquered um uh, sin and death itself, 1 Corinthians 15, now seated at the right hand of the Father, um, 
um, uh, carefully and decisively carrying out the plans of God for all the people of God for all eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we want to keep going? Anything you want to mention? No. Okay. Uh, I'll just go ahead and read and, and you stop me. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So, so we don't see yet Jesus, right? I think that's important. I may have overstepped here. Um, uh, John does not yet see Jesus. He is told that Jesus is worthy, mm-hmm. right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He has conquered. He can open the scroll. And then now John describes what he sees. So he says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, that's what's surrounding the throne from chapter four. I saw a lamb. So I heard about a lion, but I look and I see the lamb and the lamb is standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So here is how he describes Jesus. What do you want to say about it? I know you have quite a bit. Well, just that this line of the tribe of Judah has conquered, but he hasn't conquered as this coming king that has Military. just overthrown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's going to throw off the oppressors. No, he's conquered as the lamb. And it's, it's strange here, this wording, because lambs were so important in the Old Testament. Um, I mean, you've got the, the whole idea of the Passover lamb in, the, in Exodus, as God told, it, uh, told the Israelites, you sacrifice the Passover lamb and you put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils, and then the death angel is going to pass over you. And then also in the sacrificial system, you've got um, every day continually, day and morning and evening, there's a lamb that is sacrificed. And so you've got uh, then coming in the New Testament, you've got John the Baptist declaring of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now John, the apostle, sees this image or sees the one standing there as a lamb. Lambs are for sacrifices, Mm -hmm. but sacrificed lambs don't stand. Right. They're dead. But this lamb is standing as though it had been slain. And so this lion who conquered is he's conquered as the lamb. He's not conquered as this military, uh, you know, emperor. He's conquered as the suffering servant, this one who has come in and was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And so, like, it's just, it is just a beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And in that, he conquered. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. I think there's so much in the Bible that is somewhat seemingly paradoxical right? Uh, Jesus's execution was his exaltation, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Jesus's death brought life to many, right? Jesus died a sinner's death so that sinners might have life in his own name, right? And so uh, it's just so unique. I mean, you'd think that, uh, that if we're talking about a conqueror, they're like, Sheep is not in my mind, right? I mean, yeah. A lamb is not yeah. in my mind. You're thinking, I mean, you're thinking a wild beast. I mean, right, because the Antichrist looks like a beast, a big old beast that, you know, eyes and horns and, and looks like this and this and this. And yet the savior of the universe pictured here is a lamb. 
Mm. It has not remained slain. That was slain and now stands as our redeemer. Yeah. That's cool. Um, do you want to mention something about the uh, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth? So uh, this, this lamb is unique. It's got seven horns. I think we can quickly just say, uh, we think that's reference to his power. Will we say that? Yeah. Power and authority. Mm-hmm. Power and authority. Okay. And then his seven eyes um, and a reminder uh, that the book of revelation is apocalyptic literature written uh, in, in many symbolic ways. And oftentimes those symbols uh, are explained right there in the text so that you, the reader might understand more clear what it's referring to. And it says the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We've already seen the seven spirits of God mentioned in revelation chapter one. We saw it in revelation chapter four, which were the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That's verse five. And then now we see the seven spirits of God again, um, uh, which have been sent out or which God sent out into all the earth. You want to mention anything about that? Well, a couple of things. I think we, we talked about last um, seven spirits being represented as seven torches uh, in chapter four. Here you've got the seven spirits uh, pictured as um, seven eyes. Um, so I think in both of those things, you see an aspect of the character of God and one being the purity of God, another one being the omniscience of God. But as we talked uh, before we got on, um, if this is the ascension of Christ, uh, which you had mentioned it is um, happening at the ascension of Christ, then Jesus said, it's better that I go away, that the, the, the comforter, the helper might come to you. Mm-hmm. And so if, if the Holy Spirit is then sent out upon the ascension of Christ, then that's what's happening is that the Holy Spirit was representative. He was, he was with Christ on the earth whenever Christ was in his ministry, but now he has been given to the people of God by which they then have the life of Christ and live it and, and do ministry in his name uh, throughout all the earth. Yeah, so, so the Holy Spirit is not constrained to a place. Right. We see it in uh, it. We see the person of the Holy Spirit. Sorry about my anti-Trinitarian language there. We see the person of the Holy Spirit in the throne room of heaven. And then we see the person of the Holy Spirit being sent out into the earth in chapter five, the very next chapter, right? Um, and as you mentioned, the Lord Jesus said, it was in uh, um, John 15, it's far better that I go so that I send the paraclete, the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit to you. Uh, and um, so you mentioned some uh, particular view that I have on this passage is I do think this is referring in many ways um, uh, to the ascension of Christ, because at the ascension of Christ, he sent his spirit. Um, Also, the scroll is in the right hand of the father, right? Well, where did Peter preach at Pentecost when the spirit had come and fallen upon the people of God, right? In Acts chapter two, he said that that the son had went to the right hand of the father. Well, we finally know what's in the right hand of the father, and it's the plans of God that are coming to pass. Well, um, if that's not enough to convince you that this is probably the ascension, uh, let me tell you that what's said about the ascension is that Christ has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. That's what's said in Matthew chapter 28 after he is resurrected. And so he goes to the Father, he gets the scroll from the Father, which are the plans of God about to take place with the authority um, to oversee all of those things on earth. He sent his spirit to the earth. And from what you see from this point on is the latter days of what God will continue to do as he brings his plans to fruition um, 
uh, and executes his plans uh, 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 with his authority to do so as the son of man, seated high, lofty on the throne. Yeah. Amen. That's a, that's a little bit of my viewpoint. And so you're going to start, as I said, seeing maybe our own views coming out. So, that, so that's exactly what I think verse seven is talking about. It says, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him. Where did Jesus go to the right hand of the father? What's in the father's hand, the scroll. So he took the right hand, sorry, they took the scroll in the right hand of the father who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the land, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then you begin to see three groups of people sing to the Lord. But before we get there, there is something really unique, I think, that's mentioned here in verse eight about Jesus. And that specifically that Jesus is worshiped just as the father was worshiped in chapter four. So if you belong to a particular cult that says that Jesus is not God, then my only question for you is why does the heavenly throne room not cease to turn to Jesus himself and bow and and prostrate, fall before him and sing praises to him as the one who is worthy, the Lord himself? right? Um, you, you don't have an answer there, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, do you want to say anything about that? I think this speaks to Jesus' divinity right here, that he is uh, one uh, that we should, in fact, worship. Yeah, and, and I think it's, we got to remember who's writing this. I mean, John was a Jew, and he was a strict monotheist. Mm. Um and yet he has no problem. Like he doesn't even comment on the fact that Jesus is being worshiped in the same way as the father in chapter four. I mean, you even go down here further and you've got the same words attributed to him as you do the father in chapter four. And so, you know, for John to not have any problem with Jesus being worshiped in the same way that God is, like there, there's where you have the building blocks of that Trinitarian theology and that Trinitarian understanding of, of God being three in one. Um, and, you know, like every time we try to explain that, like we fall so far short and you can't, there's no comparison that you can make. And I know over the years, there's been a number of uh, what the church is deemed as heresies used to try to explain God. But the truth is there's, he's, he's holy and set apart and there's nothing like him. And so to try to explain the Trinity would mean that you would have to be omnipotent as well. Um, and which we are not. And so just looking here, we can definitely see evidence of the Trinity um, yeah. in the worship of heaven. It's good. Well, we see a continued worship in heaven, of course. Um, chapter four, we see that uh, God on the throne, the Father himself was worshiped by those in his heavenly throne room. Now we see Jesus uh, ascended on high, right hand of the Father, and they worship him for what he had accomplished in his death, right? Um, so uh, the elders and the cherubim, the ones that surround the throne in chapter four, are the first to sing a new song, right? a new song. Uh, I tend to think that um, this is referring to the ascension. Christ just ascended, and so they sing about what God has just done in Christ. So they sing, worthy are you to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. And his worthiness comes from the fact that he was slain and by your blood, you ran some people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. Um, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time there because we've already explained that from chapter one. That's already said in chapter one about the people who have trusted in, in Christ. Um, and they shall reign on the earth. I tend to take this as um, the uh, eternal state, new heavens and new earth. Um, I'm sure people may differ on that as far as whether that's the set a thousand years in the future or the new heavens and new earth. Um, then we say, see, and slow me down if I should, but, and then we see um, uh, more around the throne. It is uh, uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels singing together, joining with, the elders and the cherubim singing a song with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then even more, we see every creature in heaven on earth and under the sun and in the sea and all that is in them saying, this is everyone now. Can you, so you see kind of like concentric circles getting really, really big here uh, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever all falling down on their faces before the Lord in worship of who he is. And I think in many ways, this is much of what Philippians talked about in Philippians chapter uh, uh, two, if I'm not mistaken, when it says that God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about, uh, you get all the way down there to verse 14 and it says the four living creatures said, amen. I mean, we know that amen is an affirmation of the truth. It is a, it's so be it. Right. And so like, what more is there to say? Whenever you have all of creation in perfect harmony, praising God, which they were created to do, mm-hmm. and all the four living creatures have to say is amen. You know, like what, what else is there? Like you're, you're all coming together for the purpose in which you've created to exalt the Son and the Father. And, and glory be to God, that is what he is doing creating not just all man but like he's going to redeem even his creation and it's all going to work for his glory together um so you know i I think there's reasons to listen to certain music and not certain music by the people who create it Mm -hmm. totally different subject right you're like where are you going with this uh there's a song that um is from a group that i would not fully give affirmation for people to go listen to. But I, I think it's really good in this moment. It says, um, uh, if the stars were made to worship, so will I, right? If all of creation, everything that God has created, uh, as it says, uh, in heaven, on earth, under the earth and in the sea. So we are to, to gather in to this worship service going on in the throne room. We ought to worship the one who's worthy as well. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, if the stars were made to worship, so will I, if the mountains bow in reverence, so will I, if the oceans roar at your greatness, so will I, for if everything exists to lift you high, so will I. Hmm. Yeah. It is so far better to bow your knee now um, uh, and worship him than, uh, than when it will be too late. Yeah.
And, and, you know, as we're kind of wrapping this up here, I, I, I think it's important for us to see that this, this whole chapter really is just answering the question, who is worthy? And like, there is just this resounding, this, this crescendo that builds throughout all of this chapter that says Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of all praise. He's worthy because he was the, the one who has conquered. He's worthy because he's the one who is slain. He's worthy because he's the one who's ransomed a people for God. He is worthy to receive all of these things, all of these blessings and honor and glory and power forevermore. And so, you know, there should be like, that should result in a new song in us, right? Yeah. Like there, there should be a welling up of affection. There should be a welling up of praise to God for what he has done in bringing uh, forth the one who is worthy and showing us who that is. He's been revealed to us. And so I don't know, man, I just think it, if, if you read this chapter and you don't go to your church the next week and sing a little louder and give everything that you are like something's wrong because like there should be something stirred in you. This, you know, like I think you would agree with me. Like we don't do this just for academic purposes. Right. We don't, we don't do this to give people information. There should be a, a, a visible response in us at the declaration that Jesus is worthy. We, we should be getting fired up over that. Now, you know, like neither you or I think that means going to the excess, but I don't think we as Baptists, you and I at least, um, have ever probably been accused of going to the excess, right? Like there's probably, <laughs> sure. there's probably in most churches a little too much reserve. Uh, we're, we're not fanatical people, but we should be giving our all in worship. Um, That's good based on that passage right there. Yeah. You said it so well. I, I can't add to that, but this, this passage is a crescendo. You went from wailing, then the one who's worthy to worshiping, right? Mm. I mean, yeah. you got one individual who's sad and scared for the future. And then of course the savior comes and then you've got everyone just praising God right? Yeah. He is the one who is worthy. And it's just, a, it's a cool passage. Yeah. yeah. Go read it before you, you worship this upcoming Sunday. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey man, why don't you close this out in prayer? Okay. God, we are thankful for your revelation to the churches and Lord, we know that that includes us. And God, we are so thankful that you have answered the question in your word, who is worthy. Father, we are thankful that you have opened our eyes to see the worthiness of Christ. And Father, we pray that um, as these uh, episodes are listened to and watched, God, that you would open the eyes of others to see the worthiness of Christ. God, that, that, that you would bring more and more people into your kingdom so that they would be a part of the myriads and myriads gathered around your throne. And uh, Father, I do pray that you would help us who have believed uh, to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in mm -hmm. everything that we are, uh, because you are worthy. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You want to close us out?
Sure. Uh, we just are so thankful that you have joined us this week, and uh, we encourage you to come back next week. We're going to look at uh, at least the first six uh, seals and how they are broken. Uh, maybe we won't get through all of them, but uh, we're, we're going to give it our shot. And so uh, we hope that you are enjoying this, going through it with us, and we invite you to be back next week. <laughs>